Welcome to Stop Telling and Start Listening with David Cook. If you're frustrated with the way we are speaking or not speaking to each other, if you find yourself easily at odds in your conversations with people, this may be just the show for you. Listen in as David and his guests will help you elevate your communication skills and navigate the tensions present in many conversations today. Now, here is David Cook. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. This is David Cook. Welcome to another episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. I am coming to you live from the great city of Detroit, Michigan, my hometown. And um, every time I'm here, it just makes me happy, happy, happy. No offense to my friends in Phoenix, but this is uh, this is the D, this is the mitten, this is my hometown. And I love being here, and I'm, I'm happy to be able to talk to you guys from here. Uh, my guest today is Keelan Washington. Keelan's hailing from San Diego, so for those who are big fans of San Diego being by the water, um, you guys are going to relate to that. You know, I've spent my whole life living in Michigan. I'm trying to figure out why in the world I live in the desert, because water is my juice. But um, anyway, that's not what this show is about. The show is about um, great stories. And, you know, I posted something earlier this week on one of my blogs is that... um, um, great destinations often are uh, uh, preceded by uh, difficult journeys. And, you know, I think that one of the things that, you know, we can all talk about, you know, especially it's football season, we talk sports a lot, but you know, it's not where you, it's not where you start, it's where you end up. And you don't, and you don't discover a whole lot by winning all the time, because when there's no controversy, there's no difficulty, there's no challenge, there's no pain. It's hard to really understand why you're winning or why you're doing well. But when you come come out of um, a, a journey, a struggle, a challenge, whether it's an illness or you know trauma or anything else, um, what you learn, what you take away from it, and how you grow, evolve, and love and encourage others from there is uh, really what it's all about. And um, I'm not going to say much more about my guest other than I've teased up who she is and what I know about her. So, Keelan, welcome to the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm a little bit jealous that I'm not in Detroit as it's one of my favorite cities, um, but definitely glad to be here today. Well, someday maybe I'll visit you in San Diego. One of these days you can come see me in the D because it is uh, it is a treat. <laughs> but we won't, we won't be doing that in the winter. I mean, this is it. But no. um Anyway, um, Keelan, you know, like I told you before, you know, we had a brief conversation a couple of weeks ago, and my my whole thing is is that uh, this is all about having a conversation. So I've I've done what little I plan on doing to introduce you, and I would like this to turn the microphone over to you and and have you tell us what we want to what that you want the audience to learn and hear about you. Oh, great, great and big question. So I'll try not to take too much time. You got a whole hour. It's your story. I mean, don't tell me that. (laughs) I could talk the whole time. Um, But no, who I am, I think that that's such a big question and it's so complex. Um, But as I think to who I am today and kind of the work that I'm doing. Um, I am a international public speaker. I oversee safe houses for uh, survivors of human trafficking. I have the opportunity to do life with women who have oftentimes seen the worst parts of humanity. And I get to learn their stories. I get to learn how to support them. I am also a mother of a 16-year-old, and that's an interesting time for people who have teenagers. They know what that's a great deal about. Um, 
But I, I mean, also a part of that is I am also a survivor of human sex trafficking. Um, and so I find that my work that I do and my passion has been about knowing what my own trauma is and turning that trauma into a purpose and a plan for my life. And so not only do I get to do life with other survivors, but I get to share my story. I get to educate and train um, and just bring awareness to a topic that I feel like is so difficult because we're talking about trauma. We're talking about sexual abuse. Um, we're talking about people who are being treated inhumane. And so knowing that I've lived that life, it's honestly an honor and a privilege to be able to share what that looks like. And then, yeah, kind of where I am. It certainly is. Um, and I would admit, even on my part as, as, as cool and calm as I can be as a, as a host, um, you know, the, the, the questions I ask in the conversation we have, I kind of, um, a little nervous. Um, and I'm going to confess that because it is, it is a, it is a, uh, just on the surface to me, it's a dark story. And it's kind of like, where do I go with my questions to you? So, I mean, um, I know that, uh, you spent some time, um, with Deb Shapiro, one of my guests from last week, and, you know, talked about, um, being empowered to share your story, and and that kind of stuff and i think it is a it is a topic that um a lot of people really aren't aware about and how how common and how prevalent it is but it's also one of those subjects that borders on the taboo it was things we don't talk about so you know delve a little deeper tell me a little bit about what you want us to know about your story and and or what you want us to know about the subject and and we'll see where it takes us yeah, absolutely. And and I and I think you're right, right? It's a taboo topic. It's a hard topic to talk about. I think what I'd love to do is be able to get rid of the myths on what we have known for centuries of what this is. Because I think for a long time, instead of us labeling it as trafficking, we labeled it as prostitution, which was an implication that these women who are standing on the corner or in brothels um, are being sold online, that, that it was a choice, right? I mean, even down to the societal narratives of we're arresting the victims and then we're putting them in jail, giving them criminal records and saying, well, this is your fault. And so that's been reinforced through centuries and centuries where now we're understanding that it's not prostitution. That is what's happening isn't a choice. Um, it's actually forced. And so I have had the opportunity. And, and I think the part of that was I learned this by it impacting me personally, because I had this narrative, right, of like, well, you know, prostitution or trafficking is somebody being thrown in a van. It's like the movie and taken. It's only happening in third world countries. I live in San Diego. So something that, you know, does come up is like, well, it happens in Mexico and it's the cartel. And that's the only way that it's happening. It doesn't happen in our own backyards. It's not impacting our communities. And so I and my family and my community believed that narrative. And I think it was really the lack of understanding of what it actually was, was one of the vulnerabilities that helped me get in and usher me into the life of exploitation because I was fighting an invisible threat because mm -hmm. I was looking out for the person who was trying to kidnap me and throw me into the van, not the perpetrator who was going to take the time to groom me 
for this type of lifestyle. I, I wasn't prepared for somebody who was going to come in and love me to break down my vulnerabilities in order to push me into the life of exploitation. And so I think for me, that's always just been the biggest thing is like, how do we begin to dismantle the narratives of what trafficking is? Because I believe, you know, prevention for me starts with education. Once we understand what it is, then then now we're armed with the tools to fight against the perpetrators or what's impacting our society as it is today. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned a couple of stereotypes. Um, yeah, because because uh, you know I, I only watched uh, the first Taken um, because every time I do a, see a movie now it's Liam Neeson being Liam Neeson. It's not yes. really so I kind of I can't watch the guy anymore because every 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 movie he's in it's the same movie. It's just a different title. But anyway, um, that aside, um, so when I two things that you kind of like dismissed early on is um, uh, the the Epstein story and the Taken story. So there's there's so in the middle there is the is the real story. Oh yes. You know, so um what is it that we need to understand more about it's not third world comfort countries, it's not these random kidnappings, it's not this active uh, aggressive grooming cuz that does happen. Yep. But when we're talking about really understanding what's going on, let's not simplify it. Let's understand the story. What what do we really need to know here? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, from my own personal experience of what this actually looked like was like, I was raised in a single parent home. My mother was raising three kids. I mean, in California, we know it's expensive to live here. And so having, you know, a single parent raising three kids, lack of resources to help support her in rent and food and covering those things. She spent a lot of time outside of the home. She was working 12 to 15 hours a day, just making sure she was able to provide for us. Um, I was also raised in a household where it was just me and one of my brothers, my other brother, who is a lot older, lived with my grandmother. And so it was really just the three of us, my mom, my middle brother, and myself. And so my middle brother took a lot of the time to raise me. He was the only support system that I knew if it was getting ready for school or feeding me, like he was my primary care outside of my mother. And so I, you know, was raised in this environment early on that I needed to step up. I needed to learn how to support myself. I didn't have the whole social support that a lot of people sometimes have, but also a lot of people don't. Um, we're raised in very vulnerable populations. And so when I was 14, um, well, my brother actually left. At I was 12 when he ended up moving out of the house. Um, he ended up leaving to the Air Force. And so while it was great for him and a great, you know, career decision for him, it left me really vulnerable mm -hmm. because now I'm left with a lack of social support. My mother's still working the amount of hours, but now I don't have the father figure to kind of help support me in these spaces. And so when I was 14, we moved from one school into a public school and completely in diff different environment, did not know anybody. Um, and on this space of me trying to understand what life looked like as a teenager, like I see my daughter and what she's struggling and how does she fit into this big old world, especially as a woman. And so I was trying to figure that out, but there was a lot of things that were lacking in me where I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel cared for. I didn't feel seen. My mother didn't have the capacity 
to love on me as a child because she was busy providing. And so I spent a lot of time with some of my friends. And one of the days we decided to go to one of our local malls here in San Diego, which is something we did almost every weekend. Um, And as we were exiting the mall, we ran into a group of guys One just started flirting with me, asked for my phone number, um, and I gave it to him. And one thing led to another where, you know, our text messages led to phone calls. Our phone calls led to us hanging out. And before I knew it, I felt like I was in a real relationship. I felt like the person, my perpetrator cared about me because my brother left. So now this figure stepped in to provide those needs that I was lacking in my home. And what was interesting is he was very intentional about understanding what my vulnerabilities were. Mm. So he understood where I lived. He would ask me questions about how I was feeling or what do I want for my future and really just diving into the things that I was missing. And he was fulfilling those needs. And so he seen that I was lost and needed love. And so he would tell me how much he cared about me, how much he cared, how much he loved me, how much he wanted me to succeed in life. Um, he was buying me things. He was, you know, taking me out on dates. And I felt like I was in a real relationship. Like there was no red flags, right? There was no stranger danger. I didn't feel like that. Um, I felt seen. And, and so, you, and you felt safe, even though you weren't. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. completely safe. I mean, to the point that he was picking me up from my house, he was taking me to school, like really pouring into me. There was, there was nothing that came up. And so this is what we call the grooming process mm-hmm. is he's trying to understand my vulnerabilities to later on manipulate them for his purpose. And so about four months of the grooming process, he invited me over to his house And when I came over, he had this big elaborate dinner cooked for us and we're enjoying our time. And he's like, Hey, you know, I want to have a conversation with you. I'm really struggling with my finances. I really need support paying rent and my car note and all of these different things. But while he's bringing these things up, I'm not understanding still, I'm only 14. How am I going to help? You know, I have no job. I have no income. And so he brought up this idea of selling myself for money. And it was a shock because everything I had known was the things that I seen in TV. Um, And so I didn't quite understand what this looked like, but he told me like, you know, I'll keep you safe. Nothing will happen to you. I really don't want you to do this. It's only going to be for a short time. And it was probably about a week later that we, he kept telling me these things. And a week later, he introduced me into the life of trafficking And so what that looks like is like kind of where I say where some of the movies actually get it right is like you see this girl who's standing on the corner wearing next to nothing and buyers are picking her up, having sex and dropping her off. And that's a continuous cycle day in and day out. And that's exactly what it looked like. And so it wasn't until shortly after that I was sexually assaulted by one of my buyers. And I remember sitting in this space of like, well, everything he promised me, I thought I was safe. Mm. I thought that this wasn't supposed to happen. And so I remember getting away from, from this buyer and going straight back into the hotel room and telling him, I can't, I can't do this. You lied to me. We'll figure a way, another way to get the money, but this, this is not okay. 
And so what's interesting is as soon as those words fell out of my mouth, that man who was loving and caring and reassuring was not the same person as soon as I said that. Mm -hmm. He started to beat me, which was the first time he ever physically assaulted me. Um, As he was beating me, telling me that I couldn't leave, that if I tried, not only would he kill me, but he'd kill my mother too. And those were some of the last things that I remember before he knocked me unconscious. And I, and I think what was hard was like, he, I I remember waking up, um, a short time while after that, and, and I picked myself up off the floor and I managed to make my way into the bathroom and look at myself in the mirror. And and the one thing that always sticks out for me was like, I, I wasn't recognizable and not only because the abuse was so bad, but the girl who loved hanging out with her friends loved playing sports. I played volleyball, wanted to go for a full scholarship. A girl who loved just spending Christmas and holidays with her family and laughing. Like I was unrecognizable to myself. And Mm. that was a hard shift to really realize how subtle he was in the changes that he was making over that time. And he came back shortly to the hotel a little bit after, told me to get in the car. I did as I was told. And that's really where my journey of trafficking went from like 10 to a thousand. Cause after that point, he took me out of the state of California and sold me in over 12 different states in total. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it sounds to me like there was that moment where, um, and of course I'm, I'm saying this and it's not a judgment, but yeah. you had a moment where you could, uh, where you said, I want to pivot. I want to pivot out. I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're 12 states into it. Yep. Almost, almost overnight. Yep. Wow. So how the hell does that happen? Yeah. That's a good question. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because, well, you know, it's, um, I mean, as you're telling this story, I'm kind of thinking of, you know, narratives, you know, I I think that uh, I've shared this a zillion times, but you know, the old notion, you know, I used to, in fact, I shared this with Deb last week. Um, you know, my youngest child, my son is, you know, about 18, 20 years on and off of his heroin addiction. We grew up in affluent, you know, part of the city and stuff like that. And I always thought that, you know, kids who did drugs were dumbasses, that they made that choice, et cetera, et cetera. Also, too, I just always thought that it was another an, uh, another world problem. That That stuff doesn't happen in you know the high rent districts <laughs> oh. you know it doesn't happen in affluent america but the reality is is that you know that's my story and then there's the truth there's what i believe and then or what we find out to be to be true and you know so i as i'm listening to this story i'm thinking yeah you know this is another one of those stories where i can you know i remember um i worked in new york city for about six years and one of my assignments was i worked uh this in this, I don't know, it was a truck depot, essentially, right outside the Lincoln Tunnel, right next to the Javits Center. And I would be there at 530 in the morning. At 530 in the morning, there are a lot of women walking the streets. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to say what we, you know, that we labeled them. We were very derogatory to them. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm listening to your story and I'm going like, yeah, Dave, you don't know their story. Yeah. And I want to, like, take it back. It's 40 years ago, but I want to take it back. So, ooh. yeah well you didn't know what you didn't know though right like there's there's grace in that as well because i think if if we're honest we've been labeling it prostitution for centuries 
Mm-hmm. That that's all. I mean, even down to the way that police officers treated victims, right? Like even it's so ingrained, even if we go back to the Bible, right? We could go back biblically, it's labeled as prostitution. So we didn't know. And so it what I would say within the last 10 years, maybe we've then beginning to understand, no, it's actually trafficking. So I would say, I always give grace because I'm like, we don't know what we don't know, but once we know it, right, that's where the change has to happen. But aren't we also kind of like sanitizing it? Because I think we don't use the words, you know, prostitution or any other slang around that, but we're really creative. We call them sex workers now. Yep. Oh yeah. So we're we're sanitizing it. Um, And, you know, we're taking, maybe we're taking some of the judgment out of it by calling them sex workers, but that's implication is they have chosen to work in the sex trade. And what you're saying to me is I didn't choose this, or if I did choose, it was, it was one of survival. Um, But I don't really even think that you would use that story. It was more, I found myself in a situation that I didn't know how to get out of. Yeah, absolutely. And at the age of 14, you can't consent to sex. Right. And so there, for me and my story and what I hear from the hundreds of survivors that I work with, like it was never a choice. It was, And that's the thing is like, I don't think anybody ever grows up and says, you know what? I want to be a sex worker when I grow up. That's the field I want to get into, right? Like that's never the narrative. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer in like, we need to get in spaces where we stop seeing people as their actions and understand what's behind the story. Mm-hmm. Because I think we'll begin to shift our narrative a little bit because it's easy to see somebody and be like, well, this is what you chose, right? Even the drug addiction, like that's, that's your choice. And, but not really understanding, well, what led them to that? What was their path? Because not everybody is given the same opportunity. And so there's a lot of complexities that kind of come into the vulnerable settings that lead people to where they are. But at least with me for my story and what I hear from other survivors like that, and I was trafficked for uh, almost four years. So in that complete time frame, it was never like, if I, if I had it my way, I would go back to my family. I felt like that was not an option at any point. And he reinforced that narrative by the consistent use of abuse and torture to me the whole four years that I was trafficked. Mm-hmm. So is it, um, what are they, uh, I don't remember what it is, but is it, it is a form of brainwashing, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. So how did you, you know, I'm going to probably jump ahead to the, maybe to the story too fast, but how did you, deprogram yourself? How did you get out? How did you deprogram yourself? Mm. See that. And that's, that's a, that's a a lifelong process. I'll be absolutely honest with you. I wish that I always look at the healing journey. Like it's not a moment in time, but it is a lifelong thing that, that has to happen because what I notice is like, you take a survivor who's been raped once and it's completely altered who she is. Mm -hmm. You take a victim who's been raped thousands of times. And that process is going to take forever because I think that what, what's so complex about trafficking is it's not just you're being raped, right? There's, there's an element of you're only worth what you were sold for. There's societal view saying that it's your fault and you chose this. Um, and then, and then you're going into with law enforcement, who is also reinforcing the narrative saying, well, you're a perpetrator and not a victim. And so, and a part of my story was like, I missed all of my high school years. 
Like I did not get the opportunity to develop the social skills that a lot of kids actually do. I was forced to jump 10, 15 years ahead of my classmates because of the trauma that I was experiencing. The developmental portion of the brain had to develop so fast in order to keep me safe. And so I think a part of that was understanding because in the, in the life of exploitation, you come to a place where you lose all hope, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of people survive in the very beginning by like, you know what, somebody's going to say something, somebody's going to rescue me, all of these things that are going through your mind, which I had. Um, And then it was probably about a year and a half into it where I realized like, nobody's coming for me. Nobody's going to say these people, society, communities are seeing me on the corner and they're not saying anything. Instead, they're turning, they're turning away from me and and having this narrative of like, well, uh, she wanted this. She's dirty. She's all of these things. And so once you get into a space where you've seen the worst parts of humanity, it's very hard to reprogram. Mm -hmm. Like I had to get out first was the first step I had to get out. And I had to stand in a space where society is still holding those narratives and I'm ashamed of what happened. So my Mm -hmm. voice was taken. There wasn't, when I got out, there was no programs for survivors. There weren't therapists who understood what trauma-informed was. There wasn't people who understood exploitation. They understood rape and they understood DV and they fit us in those narratives, which didn't work. And so for me, what I what's really pushed me into the space that I am now is that while what happened to me was not my fault, it is my responsibility to heal. And if I continued to live a life through the lens of everybody was a perpetrator, I would not be living a life. Mm-hmm. And so I had to take the time to go through whatever therapy was available. I had to seek after my dream and my educational goals because I am worth more than what happened to me. But that process, even still today, that that sentence where like, I am enough is a struggle that I have to work through all the time because mm-hmm. everything else tells me something completely different than that narrative. And so it's it's really about being intentional. It's about building communities with other people who have been through what you've been through and seeing them survive and thrive. It's building partnerships with people. It's doing the groundwork of self-love. It's inner child work. It's you know looking at it through the lens of like, you're not a victim, you're a survivor. And there's a reason and a purpose on why you made it out of the spaces that you've been in. Mm-hmm. Wow. Pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, that we're, we're getting ready to take a break, but a couple of things that I heard right there was, um, you know, there, I remember years ago being in therapy and my therapist would say, you know, you grieve, you grieve whatever it is for whatever it is, right? And you and you grieve that and stuff like that. But then there comes that moment. You say, "Okay, now what?" And basically, you you forgive yourself, and then you move on. You know, it's like, "What did I learn? What do I do from here?" And stuff like that. And I kind of heard some of that. It's like, "Yeah, I went through this thing." It's like, "Okay, now what?" And you sit there and go, "You tell your story, the shame, the guilt, the judgment, the guy." And then all of a sudden, you kind of say, "You know, okay, wait, okay, good. Now let's move on. Where do I go from here?" Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you said self-love, but that's a form of forgiveness, right? You love yourself enough to forgive you for the journey. You, you know, mm-hmm. you can't take it back. You can't change it. it, but it's, it's the story that it is. 
But what's it, but again, like we said at the beginning, it's not where I started, it's where I end up. So where am I going to go with this story? How am I going to love myself through this journey going forward? Mm. You know, that's pretty cool. It's a <laughs> shitty story, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> Yes. So, all right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Well, it's usually not a quick, I'm lying. It's two minutes long, and then we'll be back and we will uh, follow up and talk a little bit about uh, Keelan's work with um, um, education and advocacy, because I think that's a powerful, that's that's a powerful weapon and we need to hear how she's doing it and how we can support her. So we'll be back. Thanks. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. We are living in a time where a relentless commitment to opinions and beliefs are dividing communities and fracturing crucial relationships. Making ourselves right and those who disagree with us wrong leaves little room for engaging in a constructive learning dialogue there is little opportunity to change minds, find common ground, or solve complex problems. Those who are not being heard or understood become angry, hurt, lost, isolated, alone, and more. While mental health-related issues are on the rise, too few know how to safely share their struggles, and far too many don't know how to care about those that do. While it is increasingly frustrating to experience an increase in this communication divide, there is hope. And according to David Cook, there is an answer. The answer lies in how we adjust our communication style and shift our listening behaviors. In his radio show, Stop Telling and Start Listening, host David Cook introduces his audiences to the power found in creating a safe place for sharing life perspectives and experiences without judgment, criticism, correction, or shame. There are tremendous opportunities in learning to see the world from the eyes of another. Join David on Mondays at 11 Pacific. Discover how shifting your listening behaviors will close the divide that exists between you and others in your community. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Stop Telling and Start Listening. Have a question for David or his guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Or you can email Dave at dave at thecookgroupllc.com. Now, back to the show with David. Hey, everybody. Welcome back from our break. This is Dave Cook with Stop Telling and Start Listening and my new best friend, Keelan Washington. Um, you know, I was during break, Keelan and I were talking, but then right as I was listening to the intro, and I've said this before, is I love this uh, opportunity to meet people and have these conversations. I, you know, somebody said to me years ago, if you could do something um, for the rest of your life and not, and then I have to worry about money, what would you do? And I said, I'd sit at a coffee shop and talk to people all day long. Um, you know, it's amazing. We kind of look around and we look for, you know, people who look cool and energized and they're wearing the right jeans or driving the cool car or the hot girl with the nice jeans on or whatever, you know, and I'm thinking like, so what? (laughs) There are just a lot of like, just really fantastic people grinding things out every day with great stories. And, and that, I think that that's what this show is all about is, is digging deep into people who, who, um, 
are doing really cool things and their journey is, is interesting and their passion for loving, encouraging, supporting other people is interesting. And so I'm really lucky to have somebody like Keelan on the show today. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I think what I what I love about this and like your calling to this is that you're creating a platform for people to be heard. Like I think we we desire to be seen and known. Like it's part of the human experience. And so sometimes we don't have the platform to always do that. And so I love that because there's a space I'm very similar to you in that aspect of like, I just want to know people. Like I learn so much just by having conversations. Like if I look at my tribe of people, they're all different, right? Different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different religions, um, because stories are meant to be told. And so I love that, like you just answered that calling and it's like, let's have effective and difficult conversations because again, that's kind of what we're designed for is connection. So I love it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the, the trick to it, I shouldn't say trick, but the challenge to it all is, and I think that this is where, you know, I'll, I'll give myself, you know, a little egotistical nod, but for whatever reason, my entire life, people have always felt safe around me. So my curiosity, even though I, you know, I ask really wild questions because I can't believe you asked that question. It's like, well, it's what popped in my head and I wanted to know. And people, oh, that's a hard question, but okay, you asked, I'll tell. And so I've just found that I, um, you know, I, I love the idea, the opportunity to create a safe space for people to be authentic with me and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I, uh, one thing as I found is, is that I can't stand um, formal structure because I don't think it's real. Yep. You know, it's a bunch of rules and like structure in and of itself, formality and structure. Listen to those words that, you know, it's a lot of horse shit. And, but it's kind of like, you know, that's just like the show. People say, well, how's this going to roll? I said, I'm going to introduce you and we're going to start talking. Then what? We'll see where it takes us. Yeah. You know, I'm good with that. I could live like this all day long. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we, we delved into, before the break, we delved into your story and, you know, you gave us great background and um, it's just kind of like my first thought is like, holy crap, that's a, that's a journey for, that's a heck of a journey for a 14 year old girl. Yeah. Um, and so thank you for sharing that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your healing journey. Um, you, you teased it up a little bit before break, but go a little deeper, you know, get a little, move a little further ahead or whatever. Yeah. What'd you do and how did you end up here? Yeah. So what was interesting that as I was able to get out of the life of trafficking, I was about 18 years old and I met somebody after I got out who ended up being my ex-husband and I had a child. And so what was interesting, I was in Colorado at this time, which was the last place that I was trafficked. And I still had not talked to my mother yet. Um, I was four months pregnant and out of shame and guilt I didn't want, like, I didn't want to talk to her. It was very difficult because during that time of exploitation, we had, I was not allowed to communicate with her. And so she had no idea what, like, she knew I was being trafficked, but had no idea that I was out, that I was safe. And so I remember calling her and for the first time, which was groundbreaking for me, because I think it's the first time I actually felt like things were going to be okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I called her. And I, I remember picking up the phone and I didn't have the courage to say anything. And she's saying, you know, hello, hello. I'm still not saying that. I'm just in tears at this point. Um, and she's like, is, is that my baby? Is this, is this Keelan? 
And I was like, yes, mom, it's me. And that moment changed the trajectory of my life because she was the only safe thing that I had at that point. And so I remember talking to her, we talked for like an hour and then I was like, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. (laughs) Um, And she, I remember her saying, just come home. And three weeks later, I returned back to California. I had my, I had my daughter um, shortly after, and I believe that she was the pivotal point of change because what through being trafficked, right? Being sexually assaulted thousands of times, I was forced to have forced abortions, um, had got pregnant, my trafficker, um, and because the abuse was so bad, had a miscarriage. And so I was not supposed to have children at that point. And I remember giving birth to her and saying like, I can't allow the trauma that has happened to me impact her future and her life. Mm-hmm. I had to change. And so after she was born, I took this, this journey of like, okay, I don't know where to start. Um, all I know is unhealthy at this point. I have no self-esteem I or low self-esteem at that point. Shame, guilt, baggage, anger, frustration, confusion. I mean, the list goes on and, and even beginning to work on that. Um, was extremely difficult. But as long as I put one foot in in front of the other, that's all that mattered. I didn't know how to do it perfectly. I didn't know how to be a mother, but I was committed to the process. And so I remember saying, okay, I missed all my my high school. I want to go get my GED. Started to go to the school for that, which was really difficult because I missed all my high school years. And my education was a lot further back um, than I would had hoped. And so took me a long time. I got my GED. I worked on, on life skills and work skills. I didn't know how to fill out a W-2. I didn't know how to job interview or create a resume. And I had to learn all these things by taking the initiative and asking my community for support. And so as I did that, I, I ended up having a job in corporate America, which I worked at for five years. Um, I was the employ- um, development employee. And so I created spaces for other people to work in this marketing firm, was making a great deal of money, living my life, using my skills. And a part of the process was like, I had done so well in in my company that my, my supervisor said, Hey, we want you to open up another business. Where do you want to do it? Which ended up being Detroit. (laughs) And so I was like, I just want to open up a firm in Detroit. I want to do this so on and so forth. And so we were moving towards those goals. And I remember coming into into the office one day and I sat at my desk and I was like, this isn't being authentic to who I am and what I was Mm -hmm. called for. I am living and working in a job that is self-fulfilling. That was it. I was making great money. I was supporting my daughter. I had the things that I wanted, but I was so empty and broken inside. Mm. And I remember getting up and I went into my supervisor's office and I said, Hey, I'm putting in a 30 day notice more than two weeks. And most, most people do, but I said, Hey, I'm giving, you know, a 30 day notice. Um, and I remember him sitting across from me completely confused because we're working on something different. And he's like, do you have another job lined up? Like what's, what's going on? And I was like, <laughs> I, I no, I just know I meant for something different. And so I walked away, took a year off, went to school. I ended up saying, you know, I want to be a therapist for survivors. 
um, and work with them in a one-on-one setting. This is me and my brain. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And I think that my purpose and passion was so much even bigger than that. And so I remember partnering with a, a university out here and sharing my story for the first time. And that was nerve wracking. Um, I remember writing my story on a piece of paper and it was for high schoolers. And so there were supposed to only be 50 kids there. It was a small, you know, classroom, um, which ended up being 300 students. And so I was like, oh, okay, 50 turned into 300. How am I going to accomplish this? And I remember standing up on the stage and I'm literally shaking because I'm going to reveal for the first time what's happened to me in the hopes that I know I'm talking to other 14 year olds and other kids who will be impacted by my story and hoping for change. And after I finished sharing my story, instead of feeling like I was judged, I felt seen. And that moment of feeling seen changed my entire life. I I ended up, they say public speaking is like the number one fear, but I became so addicted to vulnerability and sharing what's happened to me because I understood what the impact was going to be. I was now no longer in a self-fulfilling job, but now I was in a space that I was a part of something so much bigger than myself. And I ended up doing that for some time, still do it. And I partnered with and volunteering with an organization that worked with survivors and the one I'm currently in now. And I began to work with different survivors and understand their narrative. What I've come to learn about sharing and vulnerability is that when you share your authentic self and what's happened to you, you give people permission to do the same. So true. And I've watched people It's funny because almost every speaking engagement that I go into, whether it's high school, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's galas and fundraisers, nine times out of 10, I have somebody who comes up and say, I'm a victim of sexual assault. I'm a DV survivor, you know, all of these different things. And what's beautiful that sometimes they're sharing that for the first time. Yeah. You gave them permission. Yes. And that's incredible. And so the fact that I get to do that as my daily life, like I get to work with people who have the exact same trauma as myself, that we create hope together. We begin to create a future knowing that we are not what's happened to us. And we're so much bigger than that. Mm. That's very powerful. It's interesting, right? Because uh, you, I'm you know, thinking of your story and... Um, you know, it's really interesting because you when you when you emerged, there's a couple of things that jumped out of me. First of all, when you emerged from your story, um, and you know, I brought I brought I got a little teary-eyed thinking of you calling your mom. In fact, I probably don't even know how I can go through the narrative here, but um you called your mom and there was that huge hesitation. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm thinking I'm putting words in your mouth, but this is kind of what I, I think this like sometimes with kids calling their parents when they've been in jail or whatever from substance yep. abuse or whatever, you hoping that they still love you. Yes. And when your mom said, come home, mm-hmm. see, I'm getting choked up. When your mom said, come home, it was like, oh, there is hope. I am loved mm-hmm. and I can get through this. I ha- At least I have a starting point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because I lived lived in the life for those you know, almost four years, 
I had a true understanding of what the lack of love was. I understood what it felt like to only be a product that that's it. I wasn't worth anything more. And so that phone call was just so powerful. I think that that, that those are the little seeds that are planted that it's like, everybody's not the same. Everybody's not out here to hurt you. Everybody's not trying to tear you down there. There are people who just genuinely love you and will give mm-hmm. you pieces of hope. And I feel like my mom, cause I was, I was captivated in shame. Mm-hmm. I was in the shame bubble, the guilt, the, right. how can somebody understand, or does she also have the narrative that most people have that it was my fault? Did she think that I wanted this and I just didn't care about her? Like there were so many different components, but what was beautiful was her response to me changed not only the way that I returned home, it changed the way that I parent as well. Mm-hmm. You you understood what unconditional love looked like. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that that's it's a pretty powerful thing. Unfortunately, I think a lot of parents don't get that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we get frustrated, angry, disappointed, hurt by our kids. They, you know, they embarrass us. They do stupid things. They don't do things that we want them to do. And they get caught up in that narrative. And I'm thinking, you guys realize that your kid's probably lost, confused, hurt in a place they don't want to be either. The last thing that they need is to hear the criticism. What they need to do is they need to experience your love. Yes. And it's not always easy. Mm -hmm. But as a parent, that's the greatest gift you can give your child is your gift of unconditional love, even when it's not easy to do, even when you're confused, frustrated, hurt, or angry, because the gift of love is the greatest thing. Absolutely. I was just having that conversation with, with my daughter yesterday, actually, um, where I let her know, like she, you know, she's 16, she's going to face challenges in her life. We were all 16 at one point and oh, how crazy. Uh, me, I can't, re- I can't remember being 16, <laughs> but I, I believe you, that was true. Yes. <laughs> and the thing about it is like, they're going to mess up because we're human. The only way that we actually learn is a lot of times by the trials that we're faced with. It's not Mm -hmm. always about doing it right. If we did it right, we wouldn't learn very much. Mm -hmm. And so, but the conversation was, you know, she's almost 18. She's, you know, has plans for the future and going to be out the house in a few years. But the conversation was surrounded like, no matter what happens in life, you will always have a safe space to return to. Not with judgment, not with criticism not with anger, but with love and, and correction that is through the lens of love, because we can get correction out of anger. And like, I wish you would do this or whatever, but it's, Hey, this sucks. It's not the greatest. Let me love on you. And what did we learn and how do we shift? Mm -hmm. And so when it's met with that, I think the conversations that our kids have with us are very different. They're, they feel more comfortable telling us when they messed up, because if we create a hostile environment, They're not going to be so open to sharing when they feel like they're in shame and guilt. And what kind of relationship is that? Yeah, I remember I had a, um, I was on a radio show doing an interview and I said, uh, I I think, I don't think the DJ that interviewed me actually had a, was a, was a parent, but I said to them, I said, you know, I can't control my son's choices, decisions, and behaviors, you know, and God forbid he would, you know, pick up and then die from an overdose. But I said, my only, my only hope, my only wish is that God forbid that happens. But if it does happen, that the last thing he realized was that his dad still loved him. 
So, yeah. you know, and and she's like, wow, that, what do you mean? It's like, well, I can't, I can't make them make the right decisions, but I can love them. And I want them, I don't want to, I don't want to be in a situation where my son leaves the house and I'm screaming at him and telling me, you know, all the stupid things he's doing and all the ways he's wrong. Um, you know, he's going to make his choices, but at the, some way there's got to be a way for me to convey to him, Hey, I'm hurting for you. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm frustrated with your choices, but don't ever forget. Like you said, there's a safe place here and I love you no matter what. That's the, if that's, that better be the last thing you say to your kids. (laughs) Yes. And, And I think we forget sometimes as parents, like, We've all messed up. Why do we hold our kids at a higher standard than we hold ourselves half the time? Right. Like, my, well, my son said to me, he says, Dad, he says, you've done worse things in high school and college than I've done in my entire life. I said, no shit, Sherlock. I got it. <laughs> you know? You know, yeah, you've had yeah. this one story in your life that's very dark and painful. But you're right, man. I was a, I was a walking screw up. You know? So what? I'm here today. I have a story to tell. It's made me who I am today, just like you. You have, It's made you who you are. It's given you power. It's given you a, a, a gift. Yeah, shit. You would have loved to have found it in a different way, but you found it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I think it, it's so interesting is like we can all sit in spaces where we've messed up in life and we remember the people who beat us down, but we also remember the people who created a space for us to be human. And those are the people that we run to. This yep. is the same thing with our with our children. We create a space and environment where it's met with love. And oftentimes that relationship, no matter how hard it is or what they face, becomes 10 times greater than ridiculing them on what we think that they should be doing. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You gave me, I'm just thinking right now, you gave me permission to ask you the difficult questions. Yes. And at the beginning of the show, I said, ah. I don't want to ask you the difficult questions because I was still sitting in kind of like, I don't want to take you back to your shame. But now that I'm sitting here talking, it's like, wait, time out. You gave me permission to give, to move forward. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go back and tell you my story, but you can ask me how it's to it because that's not my story. My story is where I'm sitting today. Yes. That's not, that's, that's the preamble. That's the beginning of the story, but the story is where I am today and the things that I'm doing. Interesting. You just opened my eyes to my own nervousness. Anyway, thank (laughs) you. Thank you for that. Um, So um, before we run out of time, because I always do this, I run out of time. Um, If people want to reach out to you and touch base with you and, and, you know, talk, have you speak, or they realize they need to talk to you about the journey they're on, how do we get a hold of you? Yeah. So I can go straight to my um, email address, which is keelanwashington at gmail.com. I'm usually quick with responses. And so I am, yeah, very open to continuing to have open dialogues, real conversations. And also, again, if we're looking to create space in our communities to have me come and speak and educate, um, I can do that on a wide variety of topics as far as human trafficking goes. So definitely happy to do so. But yeah, KeelanWashington at gmail.com. Excellent. Um, yeah, let's see. We have four minutes to close. Okay. So you have like three and a half minutes. Ah. Um, and I'm going to, what is it that we haven't talked about or what is it? what message do you want to make sure that you convey before we run out of time? Oh, okay. Four minutes, 
three and a half minutes. <laughs> three and a half. Now, now down to three. I'll shut up. <laughs> Go. <laughs> I encourage us that now that we've had the opportunity to get a glimpse into what human trafficking actually is because I think that like, while I look at what it is here in the States, like this is not a one-off issue. I'm not a, I'm not a person that it's like, Oh, it just happened to her, but it doesn't typically happen. No, it's happening inside our communities. As I go into the high schools and, and the middle schools and teach about human trafficking, I am always having students who are coming up saying they know it's happened to somebody. It's happened to them. It's happening in their family. So it's happening. How do we become a part of the solution? And like I mentioned in the in the beginning portion of the podcast was like education is the first step. Let's get comfortable having very difficult yet life-changing conversations. Um, being a part of the solution is looking at what are the what are the laws that are happening that we're not paying attention to that either increase penalties for sex buyers or traffickers, the lack of penalties. Um, education in our school systems? Are we having conversations with our youth? Are we bringing these conversations to our community? Because what I don't want to happen is that the only way we fully understand what trafficking is, is when it happens to us or someone we know. Mm -hmm. So I want to create a space to become a part of the solution to have these difficult conversations. Yeah, bring that stuff out in the open. Same Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, that does happen. It's like, oh, that's a, that's a, I don't know. I don't know how to have that conversation. You know what? So, you know, like a parent who doesn't know where to go, mm-hmm. what's, where do they start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they can reach out to me. I can definitely send over a ton of resources that will kind of do a step-by-step um, on what that looks like. I am more than happy to talk to community groups To I've done smaller groups with like moms and their, and their teens. And we just dive into what understanding what that is. But I think that we do a disservice when we're only teaching them about stranger danger. When I go into high schools and middle schools and we're talking about sexual assault, they know they've heard this before. We mm-hmm. think that they're too young. I mean, I'm working with kids as young as 12. They know they've heard things. And so it's our responsibility to kind of create the space, but also let them know that we're having difficult conversations, but we're open to their questions and whatever we don't know. Right. I don't know everything. My daughter comes to me. I don't know all the answers, but I promise her I'll help her figure it out because that we're doing life together. Mm-hmm. And, and you're doing life together because and this is an important message to all parents you've created a safe space for her or her to tell you her truth, yeah. her experience, ask questions without judgment, criticism, or shame, but from a place of love and curiosity. Yes, absolutely. We have yeah. an interesting conversations. <laughs> well, that's good. You know, cause that's, then she knows she can talk to you about anything without you flipping out. Um, yeah. Now you probably flip out later when you're by yourself. Go, oh my gosh. Yes. But, but she doesn't experience any of that. And that's really means that you can, you're in a place to teach her and love her and encourage her and coach her and all that stuff. So that's very powerful too. So mm-hmm. Keelan, you are the best. Thank you so much for um, joining us today and sharing your story and providing some wisdom. And I think, you know, my big takeaway was um, um, in, in the, you know, sex trafficking is one of those many nervous type, dark, you know, uncomfortable subjects. But the truth of the matter is, whatever they are, we need to have those conversations, bring the stuff out and explore. Don't hide. Don't try to tell a story, but go into learning mode. Our kids know what's going on. Maybe we should, too. Absolutely. So, Thank you right, so much is, for having me. 
Yeah, thank you. So this is Dave Cook signing off for another week. Remember, open your heart, open your ears, open your mind, because once you start listening, everything changes. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Stop Telling and Start Listening. We hope you've picked up on some useful ideas to help you enhance your conversational skills. Until we listen again, have a beautiful week.